You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. In early October, I traveled to Los Angeles for the first annual Politicon a nonpartisan Comic-Con-style event for politics and entertainment. Besides me, who was representing SpyCast in the Spy Museum, fellow members of the Politicon lineup included James Carville, Newt Gingrich, Ann Coulter, Paul Begala, David Axelrod, Edward Snowden, who came via up video uplink, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and the new Daily Show host Trevor Noah. While in L.A., I got a chance to talk to Dr. Stephen Ross, who's a professor of history at the University of Southern California. After receiving his B.A. from Columbia University and a Bachelor's of Philosophy from Oxford University, he received his Ph.D. from Princeton, where he worked with famed historians Arthur Link and James McPherson. Professor Ross has written extensively on the areas of working class history, social history, and film history. His first book, Workers on the Edge, Work, Leisure, and Politics in Industrializing Cincinnati, 1788-1890, was adapted for the screen by Cincinnati Unionists and made into a documentary entitled They Build the City, the Working People of Cincinnati. His second book, Working Class Hollywood, Silent Film and the Shaping of Class in America, received the prestigious Theater Library Association Book Award for 1999. It was also named by the Los Angeles Times as one of the best books of 1998 and was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award in History. Professor Ross's latest book, or at least the latest book that you can get your hands on right now, was called Hollywood Left and Right, How Movie Stars Shaped American Politics, this also received a Pulitzer Prize nomination and a Film Scholars Award from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. This is the academic equivalent of winning an Oscar. It was also selected by the New York Times Book Review as one of the recommended summer readings for 2012. Steve is now working on a book entitled Hitler in Los Angeles, How Jews and Their Spies Foil Nazi Plots Against Hollywood in America. At Politicon, Steve and I sat down to talk about the fascinating true story behind his upcoming book. Thank you, Steve, for taking the time to talk to us here tonight. My pleasure. So when I talk to authors uh, on our SpyCast, I ask two questions. The, the first two questions are always the same. And the first one is, what inspired this topic? What led you to this? This is a historiographical question for historians. What, what books did you not like that made you want to write something different? What from your past has led you in this direction? Well, it's, uh, I would say, tripartite. It's both personal political and intellectual. And the personal is I grew up having the Gestapo in my home every night. My parents are both survivors. My mother was in Auschwitz and then Salzwedel, Germany. 
in a munitions camp. And every morning through my childhood, I would wake up and she'd tell me the Gestapo had been here the night before in her nightmares, taking her, either her or taking worse, her and her children off to Gestapo headquarters. So, you know, growing up with, uh, the irony is, I've never written really much about Jewish topics, and here I am towards the latter part of my career, going back and writing in some sense about my own family history. Uh, the second thing is, politically, I was very concerned in the last, particularly the last 10, 12 years, about the rise of what I would see as fascism in America. Uh, and I was, uh, I have <clears throat> never been, I will confess, politically, I've never been a fan of George W. Bush, but I would also never accuse George W. Bush of being unpatriotic and not loving America. And I found it very upsetting, more than just upsetting, I found it a threat to democracy when one side, one party, or parts of one party, start saying that our president, and I don't care if the president would be Democrat or Republican. The president doesn't love America. The president doesn't understand America. This is what happened in Germany in the 20s and 30s, that you begin turning citizen against citizen, uh, parent against child, child against parents, Jews against Christians, against Muslims. It's uh, frightening. And so I wanted to tell a story of the sort of roots of this in the past, and finally, there have been a bunch of books in the last few years that have come out about this period, about Hollywood and Hitler. And the two most prominent ones that have received a lot of attention are uh, Tom Dougherty, the uh, American studies slash historian at Brandeis, who wrote a book called uh, Hitler in Hollywood. And probably the polar opposite book by a, somebody who's now at the Society of uh, what is the Society of Historians at Harvard, uh, Ben Irwan, who wrote a book called The Collaboration uh, about Hitler and Hollywood, in which he argues that we always knew that Hollywood had cooperated with the Hitler regime in order to do business, but his argument is they went well beyond cooperation to become active collaborators with the Hitler regime. It is a tremendously flawed and incorrect book. And then even within more popular history, that people like Eric Larson. Eric Larson uh, in the Garden of Beasts is, uh, Eric Larson is, uh, of all the people writing history, he's the one I've been, he and Laura Hildebrand are the two people I turn to for inspiration about being a writer. You know, if we were here uh, discussing Workers on the Edge, you all would not be here. Uh, and as my brother-in-law once said, it's a great book to fall asleep to. Uh, I'm trying to write in a different way. This is an important story to tell. It's an unknown story, which is what every historian wants to find, which is an unknown, an unknown story that's also actually important. Uh, and the thing is, how do you communicate? Because I've been working with my graduate students as well as myself to write in clear prose because that's how you get read. You don't, I just don't want to be bought. I want to be read. Well, as we'll, we'll find out as we work our way through this interview, uh, you, you fell into or you found an extraordinary story. Yes. Uh, that uh, I can't wait to read the book from cover to cover. I, I, I don't say that to everybody. Um, but this is one that it, it's, 
it's fascinating. I'm, I'm surprised. I, I'm an intelligence historian, and I hadn't run into this myself. And you know, so that whenever I, I get giddy when I see something new and interesting from that from that viewpoint. Um, the second question I always ask is because we're dealing in a world of intelligence where agencies uh, and people don't tend to be more, as transparent as we would like as historians, um, the question of sources always comes up you know, about where do you find this information? These are, these are people who don't necessarily, as you know, inherent spidum makes them less likely to tell us everything that we want to know, and there's disinformation, and there's potential for things like redaction. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you went about researching this book? Where, where you went, what you used to find the sources for this particular story? Well, I got very lucky, and luck always plays an important part. I was working, the first chapter I wrote in uh, Hollywood Left and Right, which is the third chapter in the book, but I followed the strategy of think globally, research locally. And so I teach at USC, and we have the Edward G. Robinson papers. And I wrote a chapter on Edward G. Robinson called Little Caesar and the HUAC Mob. And as part of it, uh, Robinson was one of the most active anti-fascist, anti-Nazi people in Hollywood during the 1930s. And I began reading more and more about the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League and how really the first, other than Hollywood becomes political for the first time. Hollywood as a group, collectively, actors, directors, producers, really don't engage in politics until 1932. You have individuals like Louis B. Mayer, who's doing it in the 20s. But the 1932 election mobilizes them. And then the first issue they become mobilized around is anti-fascism and anti-Nazism in 1936. And so I thought, I want to find out more about the anti-Nazi crusade. And I was on the internet and found a exhibit being run out of Cal State Northridge out of their special collections called In Our Own Backyard. And it was a taken from their special collections, a history of Nazism and fascism in LA. And it went far deeper than anything I'd ever read. In fact, I'd read very little about Nazism and fascism in LA. So I went to the Cal State archives, and this must have been around 1999, and went in there, and there are like 200 boxes. And I, I, I just couldn't figure it out, because it's all spread out, and it, there's no clear what actually happened here. And I thought, this is a few pages in a chapter in a book. I don't have the time. But I said, you know, when I was done with the Hollywood left and right, I would go back and try to find the story. And I did. When I finished the book, I went to Cal State Northridge, spent a few weeks going through the archives, and started reading about these spy stories, but I couldn't quite put it all together. And then I found out that the assistant spy master, a man named Joe Roos, left his papers at USC. So I got his papers, and sure enough, there was a book, an un unfinished manuscript, he was writing with uh, Len Pitt, who's a historian, American historian at Cal State Northridge. And about 30 pages into reading this description of what the spy ring was, I left the library, I called my wife, and I said, there's a book here. And the story is starting in, um, well, it starts in 1933, but the backstory is Leon Liu, what I discovered from these archives, 200 boxes of them, over 200. This guy, Leon Lewis, had been the founding executive secretary of the Anti-Defamation League 
in Chicago in 1913. He goes off to war in uh, 1917, comes back, goes off as an enlisted man, comes back as a captain. Uh, not something usual for Jews to move up in the military at that point in time. In 1921, when the uh, Anti-Defamation League starts its international division, he takes on that job as well as their executive secretary. And what that means is there's nobody in America who is following Hitler's rise to power more carefully than Leon Lewis. This isn't just his passion, this is his job. He moves to L.A. sometime around 1929, 1930, and he's a lawyer, so he opens his own practice, but he continues working for the Anti-Defamation League as their representative to the motion picture industry monitoring anti-Semitic images in Hollywood films. Uh, and Hitler comes to power as Chancellor, Reich Chancellor, in January 1933. And American Jews quickly those who are active fall into one of two camps. On one side, it's an aggressive philosophy that says, we have to get into Hitler's face. We have to put tremendous economic pressure on him so that he doesn't persecute Jews. And so led by Samuel Untermeyer, a New York attorney, they, uh, this group launches an international boycott of all German products. On the other side is a more cautious group that says this is going to backfire and if you get in Hitler's face he's just going to persecute Jews even more harshly and so what we need to do is contact religious leaders in Germany and get them to pressure Hitler well they're going back and forth and while they're going back and forth at the end of July the uh, group then known as the Friends of New Germany and they go through several names. First, they're the Friends of the Hitler Movement, then they're the Friends of New Germany, and by 1936, they become the German-American Bund. But they get dressed in their uniforms, Nazi uniforms. They get uh, their swastika flags, and they move down the streets of L.A., not far from where we are sitting now, marching on the streets for the first time. And at that point, Leon Lewis says, enough talk, it's time for action. And this is, this is in a small group, as you, as you write, up to 700 members at one point. At their running, peak. Running Nazi summer camps for kids to try to indoctrinate. By 1938, they've got Nazi camps, just like good Boy Scout camps, only they're Nazis. Uh, they've got them across the country. They're in New York, they're in New Jersey. Um, but the, what he does, and he's, he knows nothing about spying, but he can't sit back. He can't sit back and wait. And so as a veteran, he belonged to the Disabled American Veterans Organization. And right here on Figueroa, if you go down Figueroa, south of downtown, on the left side of the street, east side, you will see a building called Patriotic Hall. Well, Patriotic Hall was built in 1927. He goes to Patriotic Hall right after the first parade, and he immediately recruits four people. For, uh, for veterans, because he wants World War I veterans. He wants military people who have been under fire, who can stand up to pressure, who aren't going to crack. He gets three Christians and one Jew, and they agree to go undercover and join the Nazi group. And in fact, over the course of time, from 33 to the end of World War II, he keeps recruiting almost all of them Christians, because if you've got a Jewish face, it's not going to work in the Nazi group. 
And they agree to join every Nazi and fascist group. And friends, there are dozens of fascist groups in this city in the 30s and 40s. And he instructs them, not only do we want you to join the groups, but we want you to rise up to positions of leadership in these groups. And they, in turn, send him, either because it's on the phone, or more likely he meets them on the street and they walk, or they go to his office and Leon Lewis can write shorthand. So he, he takes all their reports in shorthand, gives them to his secretary, who, fortunately for me, typed them all up. <laughs> and I've got these 200 boxes of both spy daily spy reports. Many of them, his main spies were writing daily reports. There were also a number of the spies' wives were joining him, them, their husbands in spying. And we end up, the book ends with a mother-daughter spy team who penetrate and get into the very deepest inner circle. So we're going to talk about some specific people as we move along. Um, let, let me, whenever you write historical books like this, especially about World War II, uh, some myopic critics tend to argue, so what? There was no real Nazi threat. We, we win the war. No one's blowing anything up. You know, the Nazis don't rise to power in the United States. Uh, there's the obvious answer to this, and I'm going to let you do it. I'm going to serve this up to you. So what? what? Why should we care about spying against the Nazis when there were no plots in California? Now, there were some on the East Coast. Operation Pistorius, the decay inspiring, tried to infiltrate Germans into the East Coast to blow up factories and other things like that. They were captured. But nothing happens out here. So what? Good question. So what? It's a question I ask my students. So what? Why should trees die for anything we write? The answer is nothing happened because these Jewish spies made sure nothing would happen. And they also made sure that one of the reasons they're not in the history books is Leon Lewis understood very early on that if this was a Jewish crusade, if this was known as a Jewish campaign, no one would believe him. And so part of what he did is he went to the disabled American veterans and to the American Legion, which in LA was different than almost anywhere in the country, because the American Legion was not, how should I put it, sympathetic to Jews in general. Except in this town, the main post was founded by Mendel Silberberg, a Jew who was uh, the most powerful Republican in LA and one of the five Republican kingmakers. And he went to both the leaders of disabled American veterans and to the Legion and said, I want to create an Americanism committee. And I'm going to run this operation not as a Jewish operation, even though it was, but as a Americanism committee. And all the soldiers he recruited were recruited as part of either the American Legion or the disabled American veterans. And what they did is there, were, there was not a single incident of sabotage along the West Coast, in large part because Leon Lewis's spies uncovered all these sabotage efforts before they happened and never took credit for anything. They wanted their name attached to nothing because they knew the minute somebody could trace it to Jews, no one would believe anything. So what did they stop? They stopped, a, uh, for example, a potential effort to uh, get guns and armory plans. One of the, the first group of spies within six weeks discovered a plot. One of the Nazis had joined the National Guard in San Francisco, came down to LA, 
with the plans of the entire San Francisco armory written out, as well as where all the ammunition was. He then was talking to the four military guys who were spies, saying, can you guys get me ammunition here and get me plans for the LA, Los Angeles armory? And then he left to go to San Diego, where he was also working with fascists, silver shirts down there. And in fact, there they had the most active ongoing because through the efforts of his spies, Lewis then in turn contacted naval intelligence about an operation where corrupt uh, Marines and Navy people were selling rifles and machine guns and ammunition to the silver shirts who had this elaborate plan. They were going to kill the sheriff, they were going to take over the armory there, and they were going to start mass plot, which they then hoped, what this one guy hoped, was it would be all coordinated so San Francisco, L.A., and San Diego would have fascist uprising, kill Jews, and that this would in fact launch uh, pogroms throughout the country. Uh, there are also spy stories, for example, of uh, uh, clearly a Nazi agent coming in to the West Coast. And one of my main characters, Neil Ness, who penetrates more deeply into the German-American Bund than any of these spies, he's asked to uh, accompany both the leader of the Bund and this the guy he knows has just come from Berlin, who's got spy written all over him. And they're going down what would have been the 405, but then just plain roads, driving towards San Diego. And at one point, they're going along the road, and he gets this brilliant idea. And he says, uh, this is where they're going to build a new military base. And they stop the car. The guy gets out, takes out all his cameras, and starts photographing everything. They drive down to San Diego, and he's told them all the stuff that's going to happen, and the spy says, well, how do you know this? Well, I have a friend who's building it. He's the contractor. It's all a lie. It's all a big lie. And they go to San Diego where they meet Count Ernst von Bülow, who is, in fact, a German agent, eventually goes back to Germany, but he is here doing uh, uh, bad work. That is, he's funding, he's the main uh, Nazi funder in Southern California. And he's funding all this. And he brings them. They then go to the naval base in San Diego, which welcomes them onto the base and lets them take pictures of all the ships in the naval base. But this guy's mostly jazzed by uh, being told that this is going to be a new base somewhere around San Clemente or so. And he cuts short. After they get back to LA, he's supposed to stay in America another three weeks. And they also tell him, Neil Ness tells him, this is where all the Japanese boats are going to be. And so he cuts short his trip, flies to Japan with supposedly the secret information. There are many other plots that go along the way, plots to kill, uh, at least two plots I've found that they're going to hang 20 Hollywood Jews. And in one case, uh, the mass slaughter in 1937, that they believe, all through the 30s, they believe that if they can actually slaughter people like James Cagney, Charlie Chaplin, that is friends of the Jews, as well as Louis B. Mayer, uh, uh, Busby Berkeley, uh, and a whole bunch of uh, Jewish actors who belong to the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, that their feeling is if they can, in fact, kill these Jews, and the idea they were going to hang them and then shoot them full of lead, and then you know, alert the photographers and the newspapers to come to get pictures of this, that once these pictures hit the newspapers, once word of this hit the newspapers, there would be pogroms throughout America. 
And that was their go. The problem is, the, uh, in every single one of these plots, Leon Lewis had one of his agents. And in the last of the one that I'm writing about right, right now in 1937, at one point this agent is passing information on to one of the few people in LA who actually cares as a police chief in Long Beach, as well as they're passing information to naval intelligence because the head of naval intelligence in this area happens to be a Jew, Elias Zacharias, one of the few Jews who goes to Annapolis. So he's actually paying attention. And at one point, as this information is being leaked and they, uh, these three plotters realize they're being closed in on, the chief plotter takes his list of the 20 people they're going to kill, rips it in half, and tells one of the plotters, take this and don't let anyone find it. And of course, he gives it to Leon Lewis's agent, who immediately brings it to the DA. The DA gets it. Lewis says, we don't want to be attached to this. The DA says, great. He takes all the credit for foiling this. So all these things are going on. None of it ever happens. But it doesn't happen because there are people vigilant making sure it doesn't happen. And, and people may even argue in the big picture, what would this make a difference during World War II if, if a couple factories were blown up, if a couple people were, were shot? But the United States is the key element we bring to the war is production, the idea that we, we are the arsenal of democracy. And the idea behind these German plots, whether it's here in California or the plots on the East Coast, wasn't to do any real military damage. They're, they weren't really looking to invade the United States or do any significant damage. It was to cause fear. It was to bring terror to the United States in order to perhaps lower production, cause people not to go into work, strikes. Why aren't we being protected? There are spies everywhere to cause paranoia within the United States. And these plots would have done that tenfold. Well, it is, yes, that's half of the story. The other half is Hitler wanted to keep the United States out of war that he hoped to keep them neutral as long as possible. Uh, and he hoped that by the time American public opinion shifted, it would be too late, that he would have conquered Europe, would have conquered Britain, and then Americans would sue for peace. So let us ask, I would simply ask listeners and the audience out here, what impact did two airplanes going into two buildings in New York have on our lives? Yes, imagine in the middle of a European war, factories being blown up, uh, National Guard armories being blown up, people taking up arms, Americans against other Americans. It would have been disaster. would have been disaster in this country. Maybe even beyond that level, because it's not like you can point to, like we did after 9-11, it's the other, right? It's the, there, were, there were Arabs who ran planes, planes into the buildings. This would have been... Who knows? It's very much like the Red Scare, where you just, it's not easily identifiable by race or by culture. It's just could be anybody who well, is an agent for another country. And plus, the other thing is, you know, we, uh, we have too much um, nostalgia for the so-called good war. And that is because of Vietnam, which for many of us here with gray hair, we remember not so fondly. Uh, we're, we like to think of World War II, that at least that was a moment when good and evil were clear. Hitler was evil, the Allies were good. It's a myth, folks. According to a Gallup poll in November 1936, 95% of Americans wanted nothing to do with anything going on in Europe. You might be able to accept that. But as late, as late as July 1941, 
We're talking just a few months before Pearl Harbor. 79% of Americans wanted nothing to do with the war in Europe. So imagine if 79% wanted nothing to do with the war in July 1941. Imagine if there had been domestic sabotage and espionage and murders in this country. It would have, I think, pushed the country even further away from wanting to get into war. And without us going into war, I think everything would have been very different. Absolutely. Well, Hitler was furious. Furious that Pearl Harbor happened when it did. Uh, it, it was not time to bring the Americans into the war yet. Well, hold that thought. We're, we're going to work to that. So uh, we're in L.A. Let's talk about L.A. Because L.A. wasn't just chosen at random. L.A. No. is a very particular place and a very good place for this kind of work by the Nazis. There are several, certain elements about this city that made it a hotbed of potential Nazi activity. Yeah, well, there are several things. First... Uh, the Nazis rightly believed that it would be much easier to send in spies and propaganda through the L.A. ports rather than through the city they refer to as Jew York. And they were right, because Jew York, the ports of New York were carefully, actually fairly carefully, not too carefully, but more carefully than here monitored for propaganda coming in on German ships. My spy reports show this was an open city, folks. German vessels, both military vessels and German steamers were coming through here. And I have reports of the, because this guy, Neil Ness, was driving Schwinn down to the docks. And even before then, the other spies were driving him to the docks, where they would see an exchange of sealed documents from the captain of the boat and documents going from the head of the Bund to Germany back there. And Berlin was sending orders here. They were sending money here. They were sending spies here. The other reason LA is important is because it's halfway between, roughly halfway between Germany and Japan. And they figured this was going to be the halfway point. And in fact, LA was considered so important that in the mid-30s, uh, Nazi supporters started to build what I would call the equivalent of the Western White House. Uh, it's referred to, those of you who live in L.A. may have heard of Nazi House or the Murphy Ranch. If you go up past Rustic Canyon, uh, you will find in the canyon space the remnants of what was going to be a huge compound, something like 24 bedrooms plus meeting rooms plus full staff kitchen plus generators plus water uh, reserves. And that was going to serve as Nazi, the West Coast Nazi headquarters after they invaded America. So this was a key city for them. And also, this was one of the major centers of both shipbuilding and airplane, aircraft building on the West Coast. And it was all open. There was very little done to keep any of it secret. So just walk in, and it's a candy store for spies. And anyway, we, we talk about open source intelligence and how you don't really need to be a professional spy to pick up a lot of information in the United States at that time. You can open up the LA Times. You can talk to people in the streets. You even reference the idea that they went to the naval uh, base in San Diego. They said, come on in, take pictures of whatever you want to. I mean, there are great stories of this time from Pearl Harbor where the Japanese didn't need special spies. They opened up the sports page of the Honolulu News and saw that on Sunday, the Oklahoma baseball team is playing the New Jersey baseball team. And so they knew both of those battleships would be in port. Open source was a key element yep. in all of this for the guys we're talking about here as well. Right. And during the Nuremberg trials, uh, the German general counsel in L.A. 
uh, Georg Gisling, testifies. He's really a much lesser player in terms of Nuremberg, but he is, uh, those interviews are on microfilm. You can access them. And he's asked about, did, didn't you do any spying in L.A.? Didn't you spy on military installations? And he laughed. He said, I didn't need to spy. I just opened the L.A. Times. And there was information there about how many planes were being built, how many ships were being built. They had pictures of the shipyards, pictures of the aircraft factories. And he was sending clippings. And I have somebody working for me in Berlin who found all these clippings going into the Foreign Office. Let's kind of move on and talk about some of, I even wrote right down as a cast of characters, because I know they're, they're true historical figures, but there's just so much personality that's brought out yeah. in this book. And, and you've already talked about Leon Lewis a little bit. Um, he was named uh, the most dangerous Jew in L.A., uh, and for good reasons. Uh, he, he is the ringleader of, yes. of this spy mission. But at first, he wasn't taken seriously by just about everyone. You, you, you list how he went to place after place, authority after authority, and was ignored consistently as he tried to raise red flags about the Nazi activities here in L.A. Well, the irony is your expression, raising the red flag. Yeah. He goes, <laughs> within a few weeks of his spies reporting to him, this is now the fall of 1933, and he discovers these espionage sabotage plots, and he goes to the uh, police chief Davis, Two Guns Davis, as he's known, and then he also goes to the sheriff, and he says, here's what I found. You know, I'm running a veterans group for the disabled American veterans and the American Legion, and here's what I found. And he gets lectured by both the police chief and the sheriff that Hitler actually got it right, that the real problem in America is, is, not, is not, uh, Nazis and fascists. The real problem is in Boyle Heights with all those Jewish communists. And that Hitler is only trying to combat the economic problems that Jews bring. This is what he's being taught, told by the sheriff and the police chief. He goes to the head of the Secret Service in L.A., who's sympathetic, but says, I can't do anything. He contacts the FBI. They only have like 300 agents at that time. Most of those agents are stationed along the East Coast. Uh, the few who are out here, no FBI in 34 are being trained in counterespionage. And to the extent the FBI is doing anything, they're tracking reds. So that even by 1940, I, I've gotten Freedom of Information Act files and I have all the FBI records, they've got everything wrong. And the only thing they got right is the information from their, quote, confidential informants that are all blacked out that are Leon Lewis and his associate spymaster, Joe Roos. They even have the wrong identification for the head Nazi here. They, they, they don't care. Hoover doesn't care. He only cares about Reds. Only by around 1942 do they begin taking Nazis seriously. Well, the amazing thing is that he actually goes to Jewish organizations that don't care. Well, they, certainly they care, but they don't they don't try to get involved in, in, in stopping this themselves. Yeah, some of them do. He goes, uh, he finally figures in November 1933, he's desperate, and he goes to Washington, D.C., where he hears that uh, Samuel Dickstein, a Jewish congressman from New York, is trying to create an un-American activities committee that's going to investigate Nazi and fascist activity in America, which eventually becomes the first House Un-American Activities Committee. 
and he goes to talk to Dick Steen, and he's convinced, I'm going to finally talk to somebody who's going to be on the same page. And he realizes Dick Steen has done a shoddy investigation. Most of the stuff he has is clippings from newspapers. He's interviewed people without investigating them or ver verifying anything. And he was prepared to turn his spy files over to Dick Steen, and he realized Dick Steen's going to just use them for publicity, blow my spies, and end my operation. So he shuts up. And he goes to visit other Jewish groups he's working with in New York and Chicago. And they both tell him, well, we're going to leave it up to Dickstein and HUAC. And he thinks, we're screwed. And only the ADL people in Chicago are willing to listen. And they put together an immediate, a very quick meeting. And they get a number of small groups, a few city groups, that are willing to support spy operations. And there is spying that goes on in Chicago. But LA is really the center. This is the most important spy operation being run by private citizens in the country. Now, all of us, when we, we decide to do our profession, when we train for it, we, a lot of training goes into it. Many of us went to school for many, many years. And we would probably be pretty annoyed if popular culture showed that anybody could do it without any training. Well, that's what popular culture does with spies. Anybody can be a spy. You don't have to train for it. You don't have to know how to do it. The trade draft comes naturally. Well, you don't fall into that trap, thankfully, because Joseph Ruse, as you explain in the book, was the trainer for this group of spies. And he himself was taught by one of the masters of the field. Let's talk a little bit about how yeah. he learned his trade crafts. I think it's one of these interesting connections that you just So Joseph Ruse is born in Vienna, raised in Berlin, comes over to Chicago, where he has family in the 20s. And he hooks up with his uncle, Julius Klein. And by 1933, uh, the two of them start a two-man spy operation, spying on Friends of New Germany in Chicago. Chicago's a big early center of Nazi activity. And they, you know, to go undercover, they get a few guys. They're also working as journalists. Both of them work as journalists in German-language newspapers. And Roos is, does well enough to move to the Hearst newspaper in Chicago. And Uncle Julius says to him, you know, you should write a memo uh, to your editor about this, what's going on. And he does, and the editor sends the memo up to the publisher. Well, the publisher, Roy Keane, also happens to be the head of the Illinois National Guard. And so he calls Roos into his office one day and says, so tell me about the spy operation. And Roos tells him, and he says, gives him a piece of paper. He says, I want you to go to this hotel on this day and this time in this room, and I want you to meet with this guy, and whatever he tells you to do, you do. So Roos goes to the hotel, meets with an army colonel. He tells the army colonel the story. The army colonel says, you need training. I'm going to send you to my uh, counter-espionage team, who are going to train you in espionage and counter-espionage technique. And he does. He goes through a training period where they drop him into huge holes. They teach him how to tail people. They teach him spycraft. They teach him how to plant microphones in places. And the colonel, who he has a relationship for many more years, particularly his uncle Julius, uh, happens to be somebody you all may have heard of. Is he moves up from colonel to become general and then secretary of state. His name's George C. Marshall. It's, 
I can't make this stuff up. <laughs> I'm not smart enough to make it up. And so when Roos, Roos moves to LA around 35 and works part-time, because he's working part-time in the movie industry as a writer, and then works, yes, and then eventually gets so disgusted, uh, he goes to work full-time for Lewis. And what he does is Lewis is the main contact Lewis is the front man, and Ruiz begins, Ruiz begins the job of training his spies, because a number of them get burned, and a number of them get uncovered, because Lewis, as Lewis writes in his memos, I don't really, I'm a lawyer. I, I'm not a spy master. But Ruiz teaches him how to you know, get them, how to, how to go in and out of back doors, front doors, how to survey stuff, how to tail people, how to have secret meetings, how never to be caught, and... Uh, he does the spy craft. Well, two of his spies, you've already talked about both Neil Ness and Charles Slocum, were able to arrange where some of the Nazi party members had to secretly meet in hotel rooms that they had previously bugged so they yes. could record the well, yes, conversation. The, 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 starting by 1934, the Nazis know that they are, they've been penetrated. And they eventually figure out that Leon Lewis is running the spy ring. But they have no idea, and that's why they call him the most dangerous Jew in Los Angeles. But they have no idea who his spies are. And of course, one of the great things it does is create paranoia, because they all think each other may be spies. And as the old saying goes, you're not paranoid if they're really out to get you. Uh, and so when by 1936, 37, particularly by 1938, they know that no place is safe. They know that even Deutsche Haus, which is on West 15th Street here, downtown, even Deutsche Haus has probably been bugged. And so they say, we've got to meet secretly. And what did the spies say? Yeah, well, I know a hotel. We can get a cheap room and meet there, and no one's going to know. And of course, they go in advance. They put microphones in the rooms, and they're bugged, and they get it all recorded. Contrast this to uh, the all the German embassy officials are told they have to leave the country in 1941, early in 41. But before they leave, I've got this uh, report that Gisling, the German general counsel, one day, one of the spies is in his office talking to him. He doesn't know he's a spy, obviously. And he says, Take a look over there. Take a look. See those bushes? Yeah. See those guys hiding behind the bushes? That's the FBI. They're waiting for us to leave the office, so they're going to come and plant a bug in here, and I'm going to let them. And he would have conversations in the office that was directed for the FBI, and whenever he wanted a private conversation, he went across the street to a restaurant, except he didn't know that he was having a private conversation with a spy. We're about to open it up to Q&A, but I want to ask one final question. Sure. And on December 9th, 1941, the day after war is declared, the FBI all of a sudden rounds up and arrests Nazis all throughout California and the United States. How in the world did they know who to go after? Leon Lewis. Suddenly, all of a sudden, uh, there uh, these files that have been stored away get pulled out. And I've got the arrest records every day. Uh, literally the times. If you go into the FBI uh, website, you can actually pull out some of the information of who gets arrested at what time in the day in every city in America. 
And they've pulled the information that Lewis had sent them. Uh, and the ironic thing is, not only do they use his information, but at that point, by December 9th, there's a knock at the door of his office. Suddenly, the FBI, Naval Intelligence, Army Intelligence, the Justice Department, Immigration and Naturalization, and about half a dozen uh, US agencies come to the door and say, you know all that information you've been sending us? Can we talk about that? Can we take a look at your files now and pull out what we need? And uh, I, I was saying to Vince before, I was just at the National Archives two weeks ago, uh, where finding uh, military intelligence records is shooting an arrow into the air and praying it lands. And one of my arrows landed two hours before I was supposed to leave. And there was a report from Naval Intelligence to both Army G2, Intelligence Unit, and the FBI, and the subject 120 Nazi suspects in Los Angeles, and an additional list. Every single one on that list was one of Leon Lewis's names that had been compiled by his spies. That's where military intelligence got all their information about Nazis. Sadly, I don't have any uh, wonderful arrow shooting stories of the National <laughs> Archives. It took me seven years in that building to, to do all my research. But So let, let's open it up to Q&A. Uh, please, uh, questions, uh, less versus statements. Yes, sir. I have two questions. One about the movies that Hollywood were making, like Confessions of a Nazi Spy. So it's seen, oh, it was about confessions of a Nazi spy. Sorry about that. And so that came out in 39, and there was a lot of those movies at the time. So it seemed like it was in the culture a little bit. That was the first anti-Nazi movie. There weren't a lot of anti-Nazi movies. But in the 40s. In the four, but 40, 1940 is not 1939. Right. But, so, but this is two years before Pearl Harbor they're making this movie. And the other question was about... Um, Leon and these Nazis, they rounded up after Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. Were they sent to, like, camps, or what did they do with those Nazis? Was it like an internment situation? Some of them were interned. Some of them were simply interviewed, and they weren't uh, considered dangerous enough. Uh, the head of the German-American Bund was spent several years in jail, was brought up on a sedition trial, uh, and eventually the uh, sentence to more years in prison, but eventually that was overturned by a higher court, and he was released. And uh, the irony is Hermann Schwinn, who was the head of the German-American Bund, who wanted more than nothing else to kill as many Jews as he could, is thrown out of the country in 1944. And where does he die? He dies in Dade County, Florida, surrounded by all the Miami and nearby Jews in 1973. One of the great ironies. But in terms of the movies, Hollywood can't make films attacking Hitler because the Production Code Administration uh, uh, puts a code out in 1934 that says no studio can make any film that either mocks or denigrates or attacks a foreign leader or a foreign nation. So when various studios and independents tried to make films attacking the Hitler regime, they were turned down. And the only reason they could make confessions of a Nazi spy is it was based upon a true court case. But even then, I've gone through the production code files, and there's a letter from uh, the production code, excuse me, administrators to the Warner Brothers saying, look, technically, 
your film passes the code because it's based on a true story of the spy ring, Nazi spy ring in New York. But do you really want to disturb the business relations we have, the good relations with Germany? And more to the point, do you really want to portray Hitler as a screaming maniac, given all the good that he has done for Germany? So the production code head, uh, Joe Breen, was known as an anti-Semite and was no friend of the Jews. So the irony of Hollywood, by the way, is here you have an industry in the 1930s run by Jews, censored by Catholics, making products for Protestants. <laughs> Nowhere else in the world, folks. <laughs> Only in America. Yes, ma'am. So is your book then considered nonfiction? Is your book then considered nonfiction? When is it coming out, and can I get it at Barnes & Noble? Uh, it is non at least I believe it to be nonfiction. It will come out when I finish writing it. Uh, I'm hoping to finish by the spring or at worst the summer, and then it'll be out in a year. From, I'm predicting it'll be out in the spring, summer of 2017, and it's a trade book with Bloomsbury, so it'll be very, it should be readily available. And that's what's great about this, is we get a little sneak preview even before, while in process, while it's being written. It's rare that you get the opportunity to do that um, Question in the back. Oh, sorry, back. Yeah, and then well, I see you. We'll come. Uh, there's always been uh, in Christian America an, an undercurrent of uh, of anti-Semitism. To what degree do you feel that uh, the Jews doing their own spying, and especially this myth of Hollywood Jews who may have a, a dual loyalism or hidden agenda, have contributed to that myth that persists today, that the Jews are somehow uh, uh, pulling one over on America, uh, which is not in America's best interest. Well, uh, the key thing to remember here is uh, Leon Lewis probably has two dozen spies over the course of his operation. Only one's a Jew. This is an, uh, this is an Americanism operation. Everyone who participates is absolutely committed to the idea that Nazis and fascists are un-American. That, that, and again, they believe turning an American against an American. It's one thing to say, oh, well, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, we can disagree. But turning an American against an American with hate and with murder in your eyes is un-American. We don't do that in this country. And therefore, so what I would say is it wasn't, in fact, a Jewish operation. It was an American operation run by Jews. And I would, I, I, one of the most successful and famous spies in American history of that time period was Mo Berg, uh, a Jewish baseball player who becomes a member of the OSS. And Mo Berg was so trusted, Jewish or otherwise, uh, that he determined for the Churchill's government and for the United States where funding and supplies would go to Yugoslavia. There were two competing factions fighting, partisan movements fighting against the Nazis. One was the former king of Yugoslavia, the other one was run by a man named Tito. Uh, Berg dropped in Yugoslavia when it was occupied, met with both groups, came back and met with Churchill and FDR and said Tito was better. And on his word, everything went to Tito and the rest is history. Tito ruled Yugoslavia until he died in 1980. And Berg would later go on and have the final word in whether or not the Nazis had a nuclear weapons program. He came back after meeting Werner Heisenberg and after not assassinating Werner Heisenberg, long story, and said, no, they don't have a program. We took his word, Jewish or otherwise, uh, we accepted him because he was a good spy. And I think that w during wartime, especially in this consideration, 
the anti-Semitism, which was prevalent throughout the United States, uh, with very important people like Lindbergh and some of the Kennedys, uh, goes out the window a little bit uh, when you're talking about fighting a war like this. Uh, so I think less about exactly what you're saying, less about Jewish versus Christian, and more about uh, having a common enemy. And in this case, a common enemy, common enemy of Hitler really makes religion not matter as much. As right, and it, it's not until Pearl Harbor that you could say that there's a good war. Up until then, Americans just don't care. They really don't care. Right here. Well, you've said that Americans don't care, and you mentioned the, the polls and, the, and, and compared it to Vietnam, but I'm just wondering, do you think that if they had gone through with killing 20 Hollywood stars, that America might have cared because these are the people that they went to see week in and week out. I don't think they were necessarily thought of as Jewish. They were thought of as stars. Do you think that might have been something that could have really backfired on them? Yeah, I, I think so because I think these are your fantasy figures. Uh, and, uh, you know, from the point of view of the Nazis and fascists doing the plotting, I think they overestimated the number of anti-Semites in America. Uh, and in fact, it's one of the things I discovered is in 1933, shortly after uh, George Gisling, the German council comes to Los Angeles, uh, my researcher in Berlin found correspondence with the ambassador, the German ambassador to America, Hans Luther, in which he says, you know, we, our government will never admit this, but the economic boycott that the Jews have launched against us is hurting the German economy. And he proposed to the ambassador that they meet with this man, Samuel Untermeyer in New York, who's the one who started the boycott and is the leader, and try to make a secret agreement that if Untermeyer calls off the boycott, Luther will uh, pressure Hitler to stop or at least dramatically reduce his anti-Semitic policies. Because the other thing Gisling says is, there's in fact a lot of people in America right now who admire Hitler, but they don't like how far he's gone in his anti-Semitism. That even anti-Semites think he's too anti-Semitic. <laughs> and that if Hitler would have toned down his anti-Semitism, Germany would have a much better position in American public opinion. And I think he was right, frankly. I think he was right. And I think, therefore, if they had killed all these Jews, I think it would have turned against the Nazis. And this is a time where historical hindsight needs to be just pushed to the side, because for most Americans, Hitler wasn't Hitler yet. He was, you know, he was a bad dude, but he wasn't, we all know who Hitler becomes. Now, for a lot of American Jews, after Kristallnacht and others, there, there's warning signs. But for the average American, this wasn't something we're paying attention to. And, um, and that puts you in a position where uh, there's so many Americans, think of World War I, where the vast uh, majority of Americans before we joined the war, we, we could have even come in on the side of the Germans in World War I. The Irish Americans, the German Americans, there are millions and millions of them that were still around. And in, again, in hindsight, it's easy to say, well, of course we come in on the side of the British against Hitler, because Hitler's Hitler. But not quite at that point yet. It was, it was not as black and white as you mentioned. Well, and uh, even though most of Hollywood, vast majority of Hollywood was anti-fascist, one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, and spoiler alert if you don't want your um, 
old silent movie heroes and heroines. Mary Pickford in 1934 comes back from Italy and is quoted in the uh, New York Times as saying, uh, Mussolini is doing great things in Italy. Viva fascismo, viva Mussolini. A year later, she goes back and uh, goes to Germany and comes back quelling to the press about how wonderful Hitler is and all the great things Hitler is doing for Germany and that America would be better off with leaders like Hitler. Mary Pickford was, shall we say, a little bit on the right. Well, but again, this is also a time in the 1930s where the United States is going through the Great Depression. And so American democracy looks as though it's a potentially failing institution. That's why so many people are entranced by communism. So many American intellectuals say, well, capitalism obviously doesn't work. You have a nation in the Soviet Union that has no unemployment, no anti-Semitism, no, uh, everyone's got a job, everyone's got food, and then, of course, we have 30% unemployment and bread lines. And so when you get the trains running on right. time, like Mussolini does, and when Hitler brings the, the German economy around in 1935, basically by rearming, by throwing the Treaty of Versailles out, all of a sudden it looks as though they may have the answers. Uh, and so it is somewhat tempting for Americans who aren't thinking beyond jobs and you know, their, their livelihoods to look at this as, I mean, Charles Lindbergh's a good example, and, and Kennedy, Joe Kennedy, uh, who just fell for it, much in the way that people like Julius Nathan Rosenberg fell for the, not the, the, the communist side, like Kim Philby and others. Uh, and again, historical hindsight causes us to have problems understanding that, but if we put ourselves in the shoes, as you try to do in this book, of those at the time, you can, you can begin to understand why they fall for the, the, you know, what we see now is being ridiculous. Yeah, one of the things I'm doing in this book that I've never done before, but I'm trying, is uh, I'm writing this book in real time. That is, no looking back. Uh, the, the book we mentioned at the uh, very beginning, Ben Irwan's book, The Collaboration, uh, he commits what historians would call the great teleological sin, which is, the in, in sports parlance, Monday morning quarterbacks. That is, knowing how things turned out you go back in time and look at how things should have been rather than how they were. And that's not what I want to do. I'm telling this story from the point of view of Leon Lewis and his spies as they are living through everything. And I can tell you, if Lewis had a mantra, which I never came across, it would be, all you have to do is be wrong once. All you have to do is be wrong once. All these plots are happening, all these people, and... I can't tell you, most of the things that he gets from his spies never happen, but a number of them don't happen because they intervene, and through both military authorities and law enforcement, they make sure it doesn't happen. Uh, down here. Wait for the, she's going to bring the microphone so we can pick up your question. Uh, I'm curious if you've been in contact with Lewis's or any of the other people inspiring their, their uh, surviving relatives. Or yes. And were they aware of what was going on? It was a story that was passed down generations? Uh, I, I spoke with uh, Joe Roos's son, and he told me a very interesting thing, um, which is his father never talked about the work. Oh. Never talked about the work. Uh, I haven't been able to contact Lewis's family. Um, but it doesn't surprise me that uh, he, he said his father never wanted to bring it home. Hmm. Even when he, he, told, he said he got beat up one day, uh, right near his home. He got uh, undoubtedly two Nazis because they were threatened. Lewis and Roos were threatened all the time. 
as was their spies once they became um, known. And in fact, the spies were repeatedly told uh, while they were working as members of the group that if we find out who these spies are, they're dead men. In the 1940s, before the end of the war, two of Lewis's most, pro in fact, two of Lewis's two most prominent spies um, both die under mysterious circumstances. One dies of a smashed skull in a police cell. And the police, by the way, were suffused with Nazi and fascist supporters. And the other, his wife, complains and goes to the DA and said, my husband was poisoned. There was nothing wrong with him, and all of a sudden he dies. So these two guys die under mysterious circumstances, and I, I, I'm, I'm willing to bet in the case of Neil Ness it's covered up. Well, Roos didn't talk because he was trained well by Marshall. The, the interesting thing about Roos is Roos has done, in subsequent years, Roos has done many interviews. He's done interviews for the Shoah. He's done interviews for Cal State Northridge. And I've read through all these interviews. Never once does he mention the name of any spy. And these interviews go through the 90s. Uh, and when one of the interviewers said, well, what about Neil Ness? Roos freaks out and says, how do you know that name? How do you know that name? He, even to his dying day, he was afraid that someone would seek revenge either on the spies or their families, that there were enough crazy people out there who had very long memories. It's really frightening when you think about that. All right, well, ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate you taking the time to come listen to us today. Uh, I'd like to thank Steve Ross for taking, being here Thank tonight. you. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month.